the enemy continues to pound at us all these all these struggles and frustrations and it's it's easy to hear sometimes a voice saying you're not going to make it you aren't going to trust the lord through this you you're going to fall prey to all the pressures of this wor- world and it's kind of the heartbeat behind why we use that song say i won't to walk out to the remarkable series it's not going to be easy in a world that's just full of frustration and tension and anger and opinions and pride and struggle to live remarkable lives but with god's grace i pray that we can continue to strive to be a remarkable church. I pray you've enjoyed our fall series, Remarkable, and uh, I pray that you enjoy this, uh, this conclusion of this part of the series and um, as we wrap up 1 Peter today. As we started each sermon in this series, you've noticed there's something down the road. Well, today, I probably shouldn't have a road. It should be a track because at the end of our road today, I'm gonna have a locomotive. And a locomotive that uh, looks like it probably ran a little too far into the station. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big train guy. I don't know if you guys know this. Some of you are like, come on, he making this up for the sermon. If, if, if you know me, um, especially growing up, my, my grandfather was a model railroader, okay? And so Christmas time meant trains. In fact, if a train is not beneath a tree, it's considered naked tree to a model railroad guy, okay? You got to get a train around that thing. But, but I was always purchased trains at Christmas, and trains would come at Christmas, and I'd set them up, and I just love model railroads. And it kind of got into me, and, I, and I'm not kidding, okay? In fact, I got a picture I'm going to pull up here of my model railroad that I built before we moved in our house. Like, I, I really got into this. In fact, with this model railroad, I had made the town so it was everybody's home, the, like the different buildings where people in our churches businesses. And so you, you would see the church family throughout my train layout. And, and as I was building this, I began to document it. And so when my little girl helped me, I would document her getting ready to paint. And you'd see all this because I kind of knew I was going to take it down when we moved. And so I knew it wasn't going to last, so I, I continued to document this thing. And she would always help me paint it. Now, you'd think it'd be my boys. And my oldest son loved Thomas the Tank. I mean, we went to Stroudsburg Railroad, and I was like, Thomas, you know? And it's like, it scared him, and we had to leave. But, but you know, it, it was exciting. At this, I mean, we were just always into trains as a family. And, um, and she continued to paint. Uh, my, my, my girl would always help me, and she's really become quite an artist. And I take all the credit for that because of that railroad. <laughs> but but um, my dream was to be on Model Railroader magazine. So I set up this like vision and, I, and this is totally fabricated. It's not really the magazine, but um, I put my train layout on Model Railroader, okay? And so I, I put it, how a simple move became the Lehigh Valley Railroad, which is what I was making mine out. I built Bethlehem steel and stuff like this. I mean, I really got into this. And, and it says, pastor makes his layout a ministry. I mean, I was even trying to give it to the Lord, you know? And, and, and so I, I really got into, and I've always been into trains, and now, shame on me, they're in boxes. But one day, I don't know when, but one day they'll come out again, and, um, and, and, and I'll be able to set that up. In the meantime, I enjoy other people's uh, train layouts. This uh, picture caught my specific attention. 
not just because it was a locomotive, but that its statement on the top had a word that's been catching my eye. It said this, a remarkable railway accident in Dublin. It was February 14th, 1900, and the engineer didn't stop. Went through the window of the back of the station, and there it sat, kind of stuck in air, made for an awesome picture, got on magazines and things like that because of how the engine is positioned there. But I thought, boy, a remarkable crash isn't something that anybody would want a church to have. And it led me to kind of steer, if you will, this last sermon in Peter into the area of staying on track. Not, not just as a church, but in leadership and with one another. Staying on track. And I noticed something looking at a few train wrecks. In fact, I, I went through a couple articles on some of the most, most disastrous train wrecks in United States history. And they all kind of had some trending words to them. It, it, it seems that a lot of these train crashes happened for specific reasons that weren't that uncommon. And some words kept showing up. And one of them was hastiness. Have you ever seen a picture of them spiking railroad ties while the locomotive is waiting for the next one to be finished? I mean, there was a time period during the 1900s where railroads were built, being built so fast, they were trying new innovation all the time that they became extremely dangerous to ride on even though they weren't going at any kind of breakneck speeds. None worse than the remarkable disaster that happened at Ashtabula, the River Railroad disaster of December 29th, 1876. You see, what you're looking at there is a group of engineers standing on top of what's called a Howe Design trestle. Now what's remarkable about this trestle bridge is that it's built out of iron and the Howe design was only to be built out of wood, or at least that's what they thought during that time period. But this engineer, this designer, decided to use iron. Many believe because his brother owned an iron-making company and produced iron, and so they worked together to do this new, innovative design over the Ashtabula River. December 29th, 1876, a train leaving Buffalo on the Lakeshore Railroad had two engines, not uncommon for two engines to be pulling along 11 cars full of passengers, 159 on board. That night was different than any other night for a blizzard had hit that area and the snow was coming down heavily. In fact, it stalled the train's progress multiple times. And so the engineer was kind of encouraged to kind of keep pushing forward regardless. It made a stop at the Ashtabula River Junction and train station, picked up some more passengers and headed towards the Ashtabula River Bridge. As they were crossing the bridge, some survivors of the disaster said they heard crackling sounds beginning underneath them. Can you imagine the horror? The engineer who survived this crash was in the head engine. 
He said as he was getting across, he could hear these crackling sounds and what felt like pins popping, and he knew this was danger. He basically pressed the gas down, if you will. That's not trained speech, but it'll work for speaking. And he got the lead engine, which was called the Socrates, over onto the arched area. However, the second engine, it broke right around here and fell. And all of the cars telescoped, if you will, down that path into the freezing cold river below. There's no pictures of what happened that night, but many call it the Titanic of train disasters. For guess what? Most of the passengers from hearing from survivors actually survived the fall. One passenger remarked hearing crackling sounds and then his stomach emptying like he was on a free fall. They hit the ground but keep in mind this was night, and this is the 1800s, and there were kerosene lanterns in every single passenger car. And they caught fire with all the sparks, and the people were literally incinerated in the cars that didn't make it. It was a horrific scene. Ashtabula at that time had no hospital. In fact, they started a hospital that stands there today at the crash site because of that disaster. So even some good has come from that disaster. But what was so horrible is people were coming because they heard about it in the blizzard and dragging people back into their homes to try to help them. But it was said that 98 people of the 159 passengers died, most burned. But some would say 100 died that day. And you say, why? I thought it was 98. The designer of the bridge and that other engineer that built this both took their lives within weeks of the incident, not being able to live with the mistake that was made. You see, iron, it seems, in, high, in, in very cold temperatures allows air pockets into the bolts that continually weakened it where a wood trestle wouldn't have allowed that. And the innovation of that time that was hurried and rushed and done hastily led to so many people's death. You know, as I said, as I looked at these disasters, and there were many, you can hear about the disaster that happened at the Eden River where an engineer ignored weather, just ignored it. You can hear about other situations of avalanches hitting trains that had stopped instead of plowing forward. But I seem to come across kind of four common traits of engineer and excuse me, of train crashes. Hastiness, inexperience, carelessness, and stubbornness. And you know what? I could really umbrella them all on one term. That's made up of two words. It really comes down to pride or humility. It seems as if pride manifests itself in hastiness, inexperiencing getting opportunities it shouldn't, carelessness and stubbornness. Pride and humility being ignored. And I look at it as two tracks. Anybody who's familiar with trains know there's something called a switch track. 
And, and, it's, and it's something you get off of to either allow something to pass or to go a different direction. And, and I think it's important for us to navigate this because how many of us are called hasty and we just laugh it off? You're kind of hasty with your purchasing. I know, I really got to stop that. I mean, I have accrued a ton of debt. How many of us are inexperienced and we plow ahead anyway? You don't tell me I can't do it. I'm an innovator. And we put aside some warning signs. How many of us are careless and we're sloppy with what we have to do, our assignments, our lifestyle, our diets, we're just sloppy. We're careless. I know. I got to stop. I mean, it's just like, and how many of us are stubborn? Have you ever heard it? Dads, have you ever, dad, you're so stubborn. Or grandpa, you're being so stubborn. And we're like, <laughs> yeah. But, but Peter doesn't seem to think it's that funny. Peter seems to give the idea that if this creeps its way into a church, it gets off on the wrong track it can lead to a crash. And so Peter says, I don't want to just address the church in general. I want to address different groups within the church. And I want to make sure you're on the track of humility, not on the track of pride. Have you ever heard somebody say, I just don't want to see the church go south. I just don't want to see us get on a slippery slope. You ever hear phrases like that? It really comes down to, is it going to be on the track of pride? Or is it going to be on the track of humility? And how do you know which track you're on currently? I don't think you'll be able to leave today and not know what track you're on. Because I'm going to point out some characteristics of those who are on a track called pride. I'm going to point out some characteristics of those who are on the track of humility. And I want us to learn from this. Because Peter is so concerned that his church he dearly loves will get off track by the enemy especially in times of suffering. When, when we go through times of suffering, it's as if the devil sits at this switch and goes, God's not good. Come on, look, you prayed about that forever and look, nothing. Come on, you don't need this. He gets on that switch in moments. He goes, oh, I don't know what's up ahead. It looks like it could be bad. I say we worry about it all day. He, he, he does all these things to, to make us disregard the things of God, disobey the things of God. And it really comes down when you simplify it. The whole book of Peter is really just an illustration of are you going to live in pride or are you going to live in humility? So he targets three groups. He says, first, I want to talk to the elders. In chapter five, we're going to look at today. He says, I want to talk to the elders. And he says, I want you to see your responsibilities a certain way. I want you to do them a certain way. And I want you to show something. That's what he handles in the first five. Then he turns his attention and he wants to keep the church family on track. And he says, I want to talk to the people in verses five, five through seven. And he says, I want you to see your responsibility as the people in the church away. I want you to do it in such a way. And I want you to, interesting, cast it. It's an interesting phrase. What's he thinking there? And then he turns to the church in whole, three people groups, in the last three verses, and he says, church together, elders, 
people, everybody in the church, I want you to see life this way, I want you to do life this way, and I want you to endure life this way. And in doing so, not only will you stay on track, you will be a remarkable, remarkable church. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, a church under the reign of Caesar Nero, ruthless, evil, using the church as a scapegoat for his many devious plans, killing Christians. And Peter says in his final chapter, be remarkable, be a remarkable church. Heavenly Father, use these verses to challenge all of us from the elders to the people, the parishioners, the tenders here at church to the churches, a family altogether. May we hear this. May we see this message of the pride track and the humility track. And may we, if we're on the pride track, get off it as soon as possible. And if we're on the humble track, may we stay there for that's where your grace abounds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Peter opens up and he says, I want to talk right away to the elders. He says, so I exhort you. Elders, all right, I'm going to take this. I'm going to circle elders there. The word means overseers, okay? He's, he's a unique, very unique challenge, okay? Because not many times are elders specifically called out. I want to talk to the pastors, if you will, of the church. I want to talk to the overseers, okay? Peter goes, I'm ready to talk to you. And, and, and you can almost sense that Peter senses that elders are like, oh, here we go, another person telling us how to do our job, okay? Because he, he kind of refers right away, as a fellow elder, I'm not coming to you having read Facebook and know what pastors go through now. That's not how I'm coming. I'm not now a doctor because my friend sent me an article, okay? I'm gonna understand that you know things I don't know in your position because, why Peter? Because I'm an elder too. Peter says, I get it. I know the pressures, I know the struggles, I know the concerns, I know the praises of men, I know the criticisms of men. I get your life, so don't write me off. Do you have somebody in your life? Athletes can be like this. Don't tell me what to do, you're not an athlete. Don't tell me what to do, you're not a nurse, right? Don't tell me what to do, you're not a teacher. Don't tell me what to do. We all have our jobs or our professions, right? And we go, please don't tell me what to do. You don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. Peter goes, I know what it's like. And our heavenly father always knows what it's like. He went through every temptation as are we yet without sin. He says, listen, I wanna exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's about to be revealed. Oh, tell us more. Peter, what is this glory that's about to be revealed? He's, he's kind of leading the, the shepherds, the pastors on. He's, he wants them always looking ahead. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to see it, your job this way. I want you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I want you to exercise oversight and don't do it under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not as Peter would have you, but as God. Can we break this verse down for a second? I want you to shepherd. The word means to tend. 
You know, we live in a generation of everybody's a leader. Be a leader, be a leader. You open up Instagram, how to be a leader in this, how to be a leader in this, be an entrepreneur as a leader. And we see all this leadership stuff, but it's amazing how many, very few times, it seems that God ever calls us to be leaders. He calls us to be followers of the chief shepherd. But, but the, the command and the exhortation to the pastors of the church is to not be leaders per se, but be shepherds. I want you to tend to the flock, not lead the flock, they're lucky to have me, but tend to the flock. And and, and look whose flock it is. Whose flock is it, pastors? My flock, my ministry. Look, if this church is ever called like Chris Heller's church, okay, just leave it, okay? Like that that bothers me because this is the flock of God, not the flock of of a lead speaker or something, okay? This is the flock of God that is, look at, look at the local aspect that Peter calls pastors. Any, any pastors listening or watching? Look how, look how the local charge. I want you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I haven't necessarily called you to every church. Yes, you're gonna get people going, you need to fix the church of America. I want you to work right where you are, okay? I want you to exercise oversight. So there's your leadership, okay? Be a good leader, but don't do it under compulsion. It's not an obligation. Here's another chance for me to say it, right? Don't be a shepherd because you have to. Be a shepherd because you get to. And do it willingly as God would have you to do. I want you to look at the church not as something you lead, not as something it's my ministry, not as my pulpit, none of that. I want you to shepherd. I want you to guard them. I want you to guide them. I want you to provide for them and I want you to care for them. And one person can't do that. That's why I praise God for our pastoral staff because each one of our pastors has very different gifts and we try to get gift packages that enhance one another so that we can fulfill the call of God on a congregation this size that one of us just simply can't do. He says, don't do it though. Don't do any of this for shameful gain. I want you to do this. I want your agenda to be shameful gain. And immediately, sometimes we think money, right? Sometimes we think, don't do it. Don't do it to get rich. But, but what about the other things that come with the prestige of, of pulpit or, or a, a ministry, especially in the media generation? How, how, about, how about fame, prestige, power that can come with having a large platform? Don't do it for those reasons. Instead, I want you to do it eagerly. I want you to do it eagerly. Let me make it, I mean, eagerly, really eagerly. Okay. I want you to be happy to, like, okay, fist up, let's go. All right, yes. Not domineering, okay? Not domineering over those who are in your charge. But here's your goal, here's your goal. I want you to be examples. Be an example for them. Pastors, your goal isn't to go make, make yourself awesome, make yourself pop. Make, that stuff may come, and that, you know what? So be it. It's not wrong in and of itself. But your goal should simply be to be an example. And guess what? Shepherds, when the chief shepherd shows up, which is Jesus, he's going to give you a crown of glory. It's often referred to as the shepherd's crown here in 1 Peter. And he even says, hey, likewise, you who are younger, be submissive to those elders. 
All right? There's a pattern of submission to this type of leadership. So I wrote down my journal. If we're going to have a remarkable church, we have to have remarkable shepherds. We have to have leadership that looks at the flock as something they tend to, not lord their power over, as something they tend to, that they guard and try to protect. See, remarkable shepherds, when I break it down, will stay on track when they see their responsibility within the church as a privilege. You have a privileged opportunity, shepherds. Do it with eagerness and show it by being examples. But oh, the enemy, he comes along and he stands at the switch. He, he sees shepherds out there leading their church and he goes, can you believe they said that about you? Tell them off. You know what? Never talk to them again. He, he comes up and he goes, you, you don't deserve this. What? You don't have to deal with this. I mean, they, they constantly think they did. Or they do, or the devil sits there and he goes, you're awesome. You're amazing. I mean, did you see your cool jeans last week? Yeah. All right. Like, like the devil tries everything with leaders. Oh my word. You see how many likes, right? I love what Spurgeon, there's a, there's a great illustration of Spurgeon. I've said it before, but he delivered a sermon. It was awesome sermon. I mean, it, it, people even at the end, don't ever do that here. Okay. But, but it was so good. He walked off the stage and a guy came up to him, Spurgeon, oh, Pastor Spurgeon. That was the best sermon I've ever heard. And Spurgeon said to him, I know. Huh? The devil already told me. What's the point? Charles was here and walking off that stage. Yo, that was awesome. Make this about yourself. It's a temptation. Always be praying for shepherds, especially in the media generation. Always be praying. There's always the track. Pride versus humility. Which are we going to go on? Well, how do we know if we're operating on one of these tracks as a shepherd? You say, well, Chris, I'm not, I'm not called to be an elder, nor want to be. Okay, but maybe you're a dad out there. Maybe you're a mom. Well, then you've been called to certain shepherding tasks. How are you doing it? Are you doing it eagerly? Are you seeing it as a privilege? I used to until he turned 14. <laughs> because your attitude will also dictate the example you will have on them. And I can tell you right now, I get on this pride track too much. And I'm like, oh, I mean this about me. You're, you know, it's so tempting as parents to say, you're lucky to have us. I brought you in, I'll take you out. We got all sorts of phrases, right? But when we stay on the humble track, we lead people well, and we're good examples. Well, how do I know? I want to put up some manifestations of pride and some manifestations of humility. Let me tell you something about the track of pride. It always has a complaining spirit. Pride complains. Because pride's not getting what it wants. Pride isn't being respected like it should be. Pride isn't seeing the good, it's noticing all the things it doesn't like. If you're on the track of pride, you have a complaining spirit. 
Show me a complainer, I'll show you pride. How do I know? When my spirit gets complaining, I know it's because of pride I'm harboring. Second one is pride feels entitled. Pride is always talking about what it deserves. Pride is always demanding someone respects it. You know what else? Pride strives to control. Because it doesn't want to lose anything. It believes it owns everything. And it spends most of its time not sharing responsibility, not growing others in responsibility, but controlling it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Pride also is always seeking attention. Pride loves to have the camera on. You say, well, Chris, we all know what pride looks like. We live in America. What's humility look like? Well, let's get that track open because that's more fun to talk about. If pride is a complaining spirit, humility is always complimenting. Have you ever been around a humble person? Hey, this is great. Hey, you guys are awesome. Thanks for having this over. You guys, you guys are such a blessing. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? I know, right? They're so cool. Get on the pride track. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? They're not that great. I can tell you right now. Any of you switch tracks? I know I can. No judgment in the room. I can switch tracks in the middle of a conversation. The devil's always there going. <laughs> See, pride wants to control everything. Humility wants to involve everyone. Pride wants to seek attention. Humility deflects attention. In fact, there's a proverb that says, let another man praise you. Let it never come out of your own lips. What track do you think you've been on recently? Peter says, shepherds, you have a responsibility to be an example. And so too much is given. It's a privilege. Much is expected. In fact, in 1 Timothy and even Titus, pastors are given you must be and you must not be certain things. And it goes without saying, and pastors must be above reproach, faithful to their wife, self-controlled, able to teach, respectable, gentle, hospitable, managing their home well, of good repute with outsiders. If you're a pastor's kid, you've grown up in a home and you've heard, hey, dad can't be doing that. Why? Because of what the people will say? No, because I'm called to set a standard. It's not about pleasing people. It's about a standard I've been called to that I take very seriously. And all pastors look at that and go, why did you ask me to do this, God? I can't do that. And if you look at that list as a young shepherd and go, well, that's basically me. I'm worried about you. Because apart from Christ, you can't do any of that. But pastors must not be certain things too. I mean, it goes without saying, but scripture is very clear. They must not be violent. I mean, if you came into church and you said, yo, did you hear last week? Pastor Chris went blows in the West Foyer. That guy said something. He was like, bop. And then it got like ugly and stuff. And like, and like Gabe came in and took his legs out. It got bad. And, and next week I heard John Hodnett and Kyle are waiting in the West Foyer for that guy. It's going to get ugly. I'm going early. It's not a good church. I mean, it, I mean we, I'm chuckling at it, but at the same time, you can see how it's always news. Dear Pastor Doug got pulled over again. I mean, you must not be drunkard. I mean, like it would get around, church. We're being silly online. Quarrelsome, lovers of money, nor new converts. 
Why? It must be seen that they can handle at least the position before it's handed to them because inexperience so often runs into calamity. It was an evening train. All day it had gone through the subways. It's called the the Malbone Street Wreck of 1918. You say, another one? Yeah. This was in a subway. It was November 1st, 1918. A packed Brighton Beach-bound train leaving from Coney Island area was headed through Brooklyn's Malbone Street. Right at the edge of this tunnel happened one of the worst train wrecks in the history of the United States. They had made a bend so sharp that it was only to be taken at six miles an hour. If you go six miles an hour through the local school zone, people would probably honk their horn and tell you to speed up, right? Six is really slow. We've done 15. Many of us are like, oh my word, 15. Okay, there's the yellow light, right? And, 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 but, but this is six. This engine, this subway train, which was an elevated track in certain areas, was coming down this section by the Malbone Street at 35 miles an hour. You say, what? Why? Because that morning, Union had a strike. The owners of the subway said, we gonna run anyway. And they took young, inexperienced motormen and put them in the engines. And so that train is coming down the track with all sorts of passengers, over 100 some died at 35 some miles an hour with a 25 year old kid behind the controls who had two hours of training on a revenue train. You say, what's a revenue train? They have training engines and then revenue engines. Revenue, obviously, people are on board. Two hours, the requirement was 60. And in two hours of training, the train company refusing to stop the train from going, you got this young guy at 25 miles an hour leading to a massive wreck. Shepherds, see it as a privilege. Do it eagerly but know that you're an example. There's a lot of lives on board that Jesus, the chief shepherd, has entrusted you with. People, Peter says, I would like to talk to you for a minute. And so the next couple of verses, he says, I have a see it, do it, but instead I wanna ask you to cast it. So let's dive into this section of our text. He says, now all the people, I've addressed the elders, I want you to do this, I want you to clothe yourselves, all of you, You mean him? No. All of you. Her? No. All of you with humility. I want you to clothe yourself with humility towards who? One another. Why? Why? They're a jerk. They're mean. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If there's a track, if there's a track... God is going with humility. He is going against pride. He's on the opposite track. And I want God to give me grace. I mean, don't you want God's grace? If you want God's grace, the track of humility is the place to go. Well, how do I get there? Peter says, clothe yourself. Now, this is really cool. 
And I, and I asked you during this series to imagine, if you will, underneath all this English, I want you to imagine a Greek line, okay? And that's about as good as I write Greek. So let's just, let's just imagine a Greek line here. Why? Because the New Testament is translated from the Greek into English, and they use words that they think best describe the Greek word. Well, the Greek word for clothes literally kind of carries the idea to put on and tie. And in the context, it would be that of a servant, which is really, really interesting because I read clothe yourself with humility and I'm like, yeah, but how do I do that? But then I get this image that Peter wants me to have. I want you to clothe yourself with humility. I want you to, if you're listening online, I'm holding up an apron. I want you to clothe yourself with humility. I want you to tie it. Anybody look like a leader right now or are you looking like a servant right now? You see the picture? What a picture. What an incredible picture. Church family, I want you going through this suffering under Nero with your aprons on. That's what the word means, to put on your apron. When I'm walking out of the house, I got a decision to make, church. Am I going to put on my apron? Am I going to tie it on? He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He is sovereign. He's in control. These governments are in control. He can set them up and he can take them down. What he allows and what he permits, he will use, especially for the church's good. Blessed are the persecuted, we're told. Those who suffer will be exalted. So humble yourselves. Put the apron on under the mighty hand of God so that in proper time, he can exalt you. There's an aspect of servanthood. When you choose the path of servanthood, get ready. Exaltation's coming down the tracks. When God sees you get on that humble track and take a few blows, sometimes for the sake of the gospel, he goes, exaltation is coming down that track. The enemy goes, oh, no, no, that'll never happen. He says, no, it's coming. You got to trust it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's almost like Peter leverages the hand of a surgeon. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be fun. We might even have to put you out for a couple hours, but you're going to wake up, put your apron on. You're going to wake up and you're going to get better. Humble yourself so I can bring you back up. How? How? I want you to do this. And only like a, only like a fisherman could say, I want you to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Any young moms here? I love young moms. I remember Rebecca going through the young mom's years. You know how you go through a store as a young mom? You're pushing something, holding something, carrying something, and dragging something. It used to take us like a half an hour to get out of our car, okay, and go into a store. Becca and I still, we'll go out on dates together, and we'll hop out of the car and be like, this is great. I remember we used to get out, hold on, open the thing, all right, come on. Yeah, I mean, it was unbelievable. And then you see these moms, and, and then when they get older, moms, when they get older, they buy sneakers and everything, and they go, Mom, can you carry it? I mean, they don't want to be held down. 
walking through the world, right? And you see these moms, they're like, got these bags all over. Sometimes they're like, Becky, give me, give me some of those bags. I feel bad after walking by. Because moms just take it. Why? Because moms care for you. And because of that, they're a great clothing rack. Because they care so stinking much for you. Peter goes, oh, 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 oh. That's what I want you to do with all your anxieties. Don't cast them on mom. I want you to cast them on me. So, so if you will, let's make our, our black sheet here. Let's make this all our anxieties. The word cast, like a fisherman, like throwing, means to throw upon something. Like throw it on there. And, 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 and not only that, give it to him. And isn't this like us? We go, Lord, I'm just so concerned. The kids are traveling a lot during the holidays. I'm just concerned for their safety. Or, or isn't it like us? I'm just so concerned about finances and bills right now. I'm just so concerned about this. I'm so concerned about our future. I'm so concerned about disease and sickness and all this stuff. So I'm going to cast it on you like the pastor said. I'm going to cast it on you. Okay, I'm going to cast it again. I cast it on you. And then, and then sometimes, have you ever noticed you try to take it back and our great savior said, I'm still holding on to that one. He does that for me. Chris, you casted that on me last week. Why are you still worried about it this week? I'm still on it. Oh, Lord, I gotta cast my cares. Can I, can, I, can I give you a cool practice? It's not mine, I'll just give it to you. Go to a, a beach with rocks, okay? And, and maybe a lake or something like that. Get rocks, pick them up. Maybe you and your wife are going through a tough time in your life and you got a lot of anxieties. I find it's such a great example to write down your cares, okay, and cast them. So what I often do is I write them on paper. What's my biggest fear here, God? What's got me hung up? My biggest fear is I think this is going to happen. And I cast that on them by taking the paper, I wrap it, and I throw it into the trash can. I often miss to have to pick up my care and get back in the trash can. But I encourage you to go down to a lake Maybe with your bride, especially if it's a big care, it's really something you're working on. Grab that stone, look at it together and go, this is it. I mean, we just found out our child has a disease and we don't know how long they're going to live. God, you say your love's like an ocean. It's yours. The idea here is we weren't built to carry this stuff. Cast it. But see, as long as we're walking around like we're in charge, we don't want to take the jacket off. See, the jacket represents a lot of stress in my life at times because it represents sometimes my position. And it's as if God's telling all of us, take it off and put on the apron and watch how life goes. Watch how your day goes when you approach it like a servant Instead of a master, cast your cares on me. I'm the master. So, so a remarkable church is full of remarkable shepherds. Everything rises and falls on leadership. But it's also full of remarkable servants who have clothed themselves in serving. What's one of our massive desires of our re-ministries is to create tons of opportunities for servants, not consumers. I'm not sure about church today. I would have preferred that song. The pastor went a little bit long. Not consumers, not consumers. Servants, 
That's what we've been called to. How many of you need that image in your life? Servants see it. They see putting this apron on as worship. They do it with humility. And they cast their cares on their master. For he know, they know he cares for them. But see, the devil's down that track. The devil's down that track. Any, any something, I see you with that apron on, you know they're gonna get ahead if you choose the humble path. You know everybody's gonna make a big deal of them and not you. He's constantly trying to pull us. But we gotta know the manifestations of pride. The pride track disrespects authority. That's how it looks at others, it disrespects it. The pride track compares themselves constantly to people. That's why you're seeing anxiety levels going up with social media, because you have more people to compare yourselves with. The pride track maximizes other faults. When you're around somebody who's on the pride track, all they're doing is talking about other people's faults. Well, you know their problem. Well, you know what they're like. Well, you know their kids. All they do is maximize other people's problems. That's the pride track. They look to manipulate outcomes. Oh, oh, we we live with pride. What's the humility track look like? Humility submits to authority. Humility doesn't compare themselves. They're always looking to grow themselves. Hey, you know what? Maybe I want to grow in that area. I don't want to be them. God's called me to be unique. He's called me to be remarkable. Maybe I need to grow. They, they don't maximize others' faults. They minimize other people's shortcomings. You ever been around somebody like this? Well, they're always doing that. Yeah, but you know what? I've really noticed they have a great attitude. Well, we're trying to talk bad about them right now. And they minimize people's shortcomings. I want to get better at that as a leader. That's something that stands out to me even as I'm preaching. I want to be a pastor who minimizes people's shortcomings, knowing how big the speck in my own eye can be. They look to surrender outcomes, not to manipulate them. They give them over. That's the humble track. Because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you're heading down the pride track, God's coming the other way. If you're on the humility track, he's right there with you and you're staying in step with the spirit. Hmm. It was also 1918. The place was Dutchman's Curve. Two trains, one leaving from Memphis and the other from Union Station in Nashville. They were both headed the same place, but on Dutchman's Curve, there's only a single track. You have to get off the switch to allow the other train to pass. If you don't get off the switch and sit on the switch side, the trains will collide. That day, three massive protocols were ignored. Carelessness, lackluster following of protocols, Warnings not heeded. One happened at Shop Junction. Train number one did not go into the junction because it thought the train had already passed. Why? Because when it pulled off onto the side track, the switch, and sat off the main line, the engineer gave it to the subordinates because he didn't feel like doing it. He gave the subordinates the job of passing the eye test to see if the other train went by first. They didn't have the technology of today. The subordinates mistaked another train, a switch train, for the actual other train. They heard it, went, oh yeah, it passed. 
and they went back onto the main line. The shop junction did not check his journal and just let the train go through and gave it the green light. And right at Dutchman's Curve, a train hauling over 100 people again. The train from Memphis was going 60 miles an hour. The train from Nashville was going 50 miles an hour. And they hit and telescoped into one another because of another protocol. It was wooden, in, wooden passenger cars in the front and the back had iron and they smashed in the weight. God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Church, we must heed the warnings. And so Peter directs his final section to the church and he says, I want you to see it, do it, and this time endure it. He says, be sober-minded. You can't be lackluster in your walk here on earth. I want you to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to gulp or devour. He says, I can, I can see three things right away. Let me grab my pen. I can see one, be sober-minded. Two, be watchful. He's saying one, I want you to respect the danger. I listened to Peter because Peter fell asleep on Jesus. When Jesus said, I want you to stay watchful, Peter fell asleep. He's saying, look, there's a huge danger. We need to be praying that night. I didn't respect it. I didn't recognize there was a devil out to get me. And I got to the point, you can imagine Peter thinking that as he's writing it, where I told a little girl to shut up when she said I was with Jesus. And I denied him three times before I heard that rooster crow, respect this enemy. I am Peter and I failed. He's basically saying, I think as he wrote this, recognize it, respect it. And then he gives a third one. Resist it. Resist it. How? How do we resist it? Go one slide. Firm in your faith. Guys, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, have you ever noticed this? He says, after you have suffered, he doesn't say, resist it and you won't have to suffer. He says, resist it. Firm in the faith. But after you've suffered, anybody ever suffer in this room? Anybody ever suffer a little while? You're not suffering right now, but you remember when you were? Anybody suffering right now and need to read a little while? You need to see that? The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, you know what he'll do? Here's the slide. He himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because to him be the dominion and the power forever. You see, there's this cool thing in trades. If you have model railroads, they have this thing. It looks like this. And it has two ramps. And you set it right up on this thing. Okay? Like this. And it has two ramps. And you set your train car Okay, I'm drawing really fast, so don't judge. You set your train car on that, and it slides right back onto the track. It's called a re-railer. You say, Chris, I knew you were going to do a re-word. I did. <laughs> Will himself re-rail you? Because at times when we suffer, 
We're tempted to get off track, but isn't it good to know the God of all grace is in the business of getting us back on track? Remarkable church is full of remarkable shepherds with remarkable servants with the mindset of remarkable sojourners. Understanding this is a little while. We're just passing through. And so sojourners see their time on earth as a struggle. It's going to be a struggle. We got to stay on track. We got to do it firm in the faith. We got to be in the word of God. And we've got to endure it knowing it's for a little while. But the devil will be there. He'll be over on the switch going, this is going to last. Look down the track. I don't see a lot of good things coming. And we can get off on pride and doing things our way and resisting the things of the Lord. And so my question for all of us today is, which track are we traveling on? Which track are we traveling on? Do you find yourself on the track of pride a lot? Or you find yourself on the track of humility? This is so important because Peter's saying, I want the church to be thinking about this. God knows where our church is at. How do I know? In the book of Revelation, he talks about seven churches and Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know where you're at. In Ephesus, he says, I see a backsliding church. You're sound in your doctrine, but you've left your first love. He calls them to worship again. He talks to the church in Smyrna. He says, you're steadfast. You're suffering well. In fact, there's no complaint. Sometimes churches in suffering, I think, get that extra grace. In Pergamos, they were an audacious church. They were firm in the faith, but they were tolerant of sin. Thyatira was a worldly church. They were good in works. They did good things for so many people. But you know what? They had worldly influences throughout their church. The church in Sardis was a dead church. There were few of them and they were pure, but they weren't sharing the gospel and the church was dying. I know your deeds. The church in Philadelphia, they were the blessed church. That's us, right? No, a little bit different Philadelphia, right? They stood in the truth and God wanted them to build their strength. But it was Laodicea who was lukewarm. They were rich and prideful and God was calling them to rekindle their flame. God wants to see a church with remarkable shepherds, Peter tells me, who see it as a privilege, who do it eagerly and show, show their congregations as an example. He wants to see a church full of remarkable servants who see being a servant as an act of worship. They do it with humility, not pride. They're not consumers coming to a show. They're servants being sent out on mission. And they cast their cares onto their master. And a church with a remarkable sojourner mindset, they see it as a struggle. They do life firm in the faith but they endure the suffering that comes this side of eternity for a little while because the God of all grace, they know, will exalt them in due time. A remarkable church, Peter tells us, with shepherds, servants, and a sojourner's mindset. Can I ask you, in your own life, where do you need to put an apron on? 
Do you know this is the number one cure for anxiety? Because you know what anxiety's problem is? It only cares about itself. I don't want to lose. I don't want that to happen. I don't want this to, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. You know what? You know what I want to do today? What do you all need? The servant mindset goes, all my cares, I'm casting on the Lord. I'm here for you. You show me a church with this many aprons, I'm going to show you a remarkable church. I'm going to show you a church that people are talking about and want to be a part of. And so shepherds model that. People live it. And all of you together sojourn through. If you're here today and you've gotten on the wrong track too many times, pride is a killer. Especially if you're a believer because you're under the discipline of the Lord a lot. I would encourage you, humble yourself under what he's having you suffer through that he might exalt you. It's a rough track to be on. The track of pride is constantly competing with other people, constantly seeking attention, constantly trying to control all its outcomes, constantly trying to run from its problems. The track of humility goes, wherever you want me to go, Lord, here I am. I've gotten off on the wrong track many times in my life, and prayerfully I won't this afternoon. But I'm so thankful for my re-railer, my heavenly father, forgives me and says, Chris, back on the track. December 29th. Do you remember you, as we close today, do any of you know the hymn writer, Philip Paul Bliss? You might not remember him, but how many of you have heard of the hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior? Anybody? How many of you have heard of the hymn, Jesus Loves Even Me? Jesus Loves Even Me. How many of you are familiar with the song, It Is Well? He did not write it, but he did compose the music for his friend who wrote it after losing his entire family. His name is Philip Paul Bliss. His family said, he wrote in his journal, I just had the greatest Christmas of my life. He was one of the writers for music for D.L. Moody, and he would often travel the rails to go see Moody and write hymns. And that December 29th, he kissed both of his children, having leave them with his parents, and he and his wife embarked an engine that would be leaving the Astubula station. As they went across the bridge, they were in one of the passenger cars. They crashed into the ravine. He found himself a window, busted it open, and got out. Could not find his wife. Amidst all the screaming, he heard her voice. Ask a mother if she can recognize her child's voice. He heard her voice screaming in a car. He saw the car. It wasn't safe. He went in for her. And they both were burned alive. In the wreckage, they found his bag. They opened it up, and in it was one of his hymns that he was working on. 
I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love for me. On the cross he suffered to set me free. I was in the train car on fire. Jesus didn't do anything wrong, but he picked up an apron. He put it on. He said, I'm going in for Chris. And he's going in for you and for anyone who calls on his name. And he gets into that train car and he was willing to die so that I might live, that I might be restored. And because he died, anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their savior can ride that train of humility, follow his ultimate example, every shepherd, every servant, and every sojourner. And will safely arrive home, confirmed in their faith and established. Why? Because Jesus comes back for his kids. And so if you found yourself on the track of pride, ask Jesus, could you come rerail me? I need to get back to being a servant and not a master. And I'll cast every care on you because I know you care for me. That kind of church, that kind of people, the world will see is most definitely, say it with me, church, remarkable. God, thank you for your great love for us. If there's anyone in this room who needs you to come back to the car, they're hurting, they're tired, they're exhausted. They got on the track of pride and it's left them beat up. And they're screaming out for you today, God, come on back, grab them put them back on your rail. May they repent of their sin. May they turn to their savior. And if they have never called on your name, may they call on you to rescue them from the ashes and call them into your glorious light and put them on that track that is remarkable. And may those who see that life look at and say, there's something different. They got a hope I don't have. And doing so, live the remarkable life this world so desperately needs. May we put an apron on. In Jesus' name, amen.